Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Today on the show, the evolution of the North Korean economy. It's an economy modeled off of Stalin's forced industrialization of the 1930s. And many still think the country exists in a kind of time warp. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, both the economy and North Korean society changed dramatically. And today, Matt Klein talks to economist and North Korea expert Marcus Nolan. Here's our conversation. Marcus Nolan, thank you for joining us on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. So one of the things I find very interesting about the North Korean economy from reading about it from from your work and other scholars, there's a big gap between the reality of North Korea today and the perception that it's this essentially trapped in amber Stalinist planned economy. Before we get into how it's changed over time, I'd like you to give us a sense of what the North Korean economy was like in the period before the fall of the Soviet Union, essentially giving us the flavor of how it worked basically starting in, say, 1948. Well, North Korea inherited its basic economic and political institutions from Stalinist Russia. And it is notable among states of that era to the extent to which it repressed markets. Markets were thoroughly repressed internally. And in terms of its external relations, the North Koreans put a great emphasis on something they came to call juche, which is normally translated as self-reliance. And as a consequence, for example, They intentionally did not join the Council for Mutual Economic Assistance and intentionally timed their central plans to be out of phase and frustrate linkage with other fraternally allied socialist states. And in doing so, they created the closest thing we've really ever seen to autarky. Centrally planned, markets completely repressed, agriculture collectivized, the the whole ball of wax. So one of the things that's interesting, though, is despite the emphasis on self-reliance, they nevertheless did depend pretty extensively on subsidies from the Soviets. And when those subsidies began to get cut off in the late 1980s, they began to really feel that. Can you give us kind of a sense of how they got those subsidies and what form they took? Well, they they took a, a variety of forms, but the most important one was the Soviets supplied them with oil at what are known as friendship prices. So uh, the North Koreans were getting implicitly, they were running trade deficit and getting subsidy of various sorts from all the other uh, socialist bloc states. But the most important thing was uh, the Soviets providing them with oil and military equipment. What happened was in the 1980s is that the Soviets began to get frustrated with North Koreans, as well as the Vietnamese and some others, and essentially started demanding repayment. So net resource transfers turned negative. That is to say, the North Koreans were paying back more than they were getting sometime in the late 1980s. And there is evidence from refugee interviews that the economy started turning down at this point. But it didn't receive the real blow until the early 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the implosion of the Eastern Bloc, and the dissolution of North Korea's traditional trade links, however sparse they were, with the rest of the world. That's right. You have a statistic that imports from the USSR in 1991 are about 40% of the total, and those imports essentially went to zero by the mid-1990s, which is a huge, huge change in terms of what was standard of living within North Korea. In terms of the oil imports, one of the things that was a sort of an, an implication of this that's important is that even though North Korea had been sort of self-sufficient in food before 1990, that was because they were importing a lot of chemicals they were used to produce this food, and they made those oil. Can you give us more of a sense of how that system worked and what the fragilities were? Sure. So the North Koreans decided to pursue an understandable and defensible policy of national food security through a policy of self-sufficiency that I think most people would consider misplaced. 
North Korea is relatively mountainous. Its latitude is not that high, but because it gets very cold winds off of Siberia, it's an unusually cold climate. There are limited opportunities for double cropping and so on. So in order to achieve self-sufficiency, given these inauspicious conditions, the North Koreans developed the world's most industrial input-intensive agricultural system. At its peak, they were applying more agricultural chemicals than the Japanese were. Important in this was fertilizer, and the oil they were getting from the Soviets was not only used for transportation purposes, but it was used as feedstock for fertilizer. So in essence, what happened was when they were hit with that massive trade shock from the Soviets in 1990, 1991, the agricultural system began to be deprived of these critical inputs that were needed to maintain very high yields. And as yields began to fall, the only way the North Koreans could maintain the level of domestic output was to bring more and more marginal land in, into production. So they literally started cutting uh, forests down on hillsides. That in turn contributed to soil erosion, given the sort of seasonal monsoon rain patterns on the Korean peninsula, that led to silting off of rivers, reservoirs, canals, and ultimately manifested in massive floods in 1995 and 1996, which worsened the famine, which was already underway at that point. So now we're getting into what was probably the, the salient cause of the big changes in the North Korean economy, which is the famine of the 1990s. Um, you've done a lot of work on, on measuring this, and, and you just described some of what the bigger long-term causes were. Your estimate is that, and, and the estimate of other scholars, is that probably between about 600,000 to a million people died in the mid-1990s, or about 3 to 5% of the North Korean population. Can you explain more of how North Korean society and, and economy and politics reacted to this during that period? Well, there's a lot we don't know about the famine, but it appears that as the economy was hit with these big trade shocks in 1990 and 1991, domestic food supply began to tighten up, and the regime initiated something called a let's eat two meals a day campaign. For reasons that we'll never know, the North Korean leadership just didn't seem to grasp the epical nature of changes around them. I mean, the Vietnamese were subjected to the same macroeconomic shocks with the withdrawal of Soviet aid, but they initiated the reform policy of Doi Moi, and they adjusted relatively quickly. And Vietnam, you know, has done relatively well in the intervening 25 years. For whatever reason, the North Koreans just didn't seem to grasp what was going on, and they stood pat. So as the domestic food situation worsened, rather than attempting to export more and buy food on the open market, as other similarly situated countries in Northeast Asia do, or even borrow money. Well, they couldn't borrow money because they had defaulted on Western debts earlier and they were basically cut off. Instead, they just repressed consumption. And death rates began rising in the early 1990s. Eventually, the North Koreans approached the Japanese, and then later the South Koreans, and then later the United Nations system for food assistance in 1994 when they started to enter in famine. And the famine was pretty full-blown by 1995 and 1996. So to speak crudely, the system of food distribution was something called the public distribution system in which people were given food on a quantity ration basis. The PDS started failing. There simply wasn't enough food in the system to, to go around. And to put it bluntly, people who played by the rules died. Small-scale social units, families, work units, local government offices, small-scale military units, all began acting in entrepreneurial ways, uh, much of which was technically illegal, in order to access food. And the importance is that the marketization that we have observed in the North Korean economy over the last 25 years, the movement from that kind of classic Stalinist centrally planned economy to what we see today, which I would describe as a highly distorted market economy, was basically a product of state failure. It was not the product of any kind of state saying, hmm, we need to do these reforms to improve economic efficiency. It was a bottom-up process driven by famine coping 
in the absence of a properly functioning government apparatus. The marketization of the North Korean economy was fundamentally a product of state failure. And when we talk about marketization, what were some of the ways that this actually took place? I mean, one of the things that's interesting as a contrast to, for example, Vietnam is that North Korea was already a very industrialized and urbanized economy. So most people who lived there wouldn't have direct access to being able to produce their own food, even if they'd wanted to. So it was a very industrialized economy and capacity utilization started falling rapidly in the first half of the 1990s. And what food that was available was not distributed uniformly across the population in terms of either political connections or geographic distribution. So up in the, the far northeast of the country, which was a heavily industrialized area, people literally started dismantling their factories, basically, and selling stuff or bartering across the Chinese border. So they would cut down forests, they would dismantle uh, unused facilities or machinery and barter this as scrap with the Chinese for grain. And so what started out as barter trade eventually monetized, and it spread from simply food to a wider range of consumer goods. So basically, it was decentralized trade undertaken by various types of social units across the border with China. And it was kind of uneven across the country, but that's, that was one force to marketize the economy. The other force was the role of international aid. At its peak, aid fed, in principle, one-third of the population. So so the volumes of aid we're talking about are quite large. Now, famine situation, food is highly valuable, and one can get rich if one can capture the food and monetize it. So what you had in the case of North Korea was aid was coming in. There were groups, including the military and highly connected party people, who were able to divert that aid, but you can only make money off of it if markets exist. And so aid became a kind of lubricant for the development of markets, because now you had components of the elite who actually had an interest in seeing markets develop, because it was through the development of markets and the diversion of this international aid that they could become rich. So the two driving forces in the marketization was coping at a kind of low level by individual families and small-scale social units and the diversion of aid with the assistance of regime elites. Was it expected or or perceived and understood at the time that aid was being used in this way and effectively undermining the planning system that had existed before? That's a great question. And it's a question that I can't answer and I don't think anyone can answer at this time. One of the things about North Korea is we simply don't have access to their internal discussions in any way. So it's it's hard to know exactly the calculations that people within the regime were making about these developments. What one can see implicitly is that the state has always had a kind of ambivalent stance towards the market. The market is a useful safety valve when things get bad, but when resources are available, uh, the state tends to crack down on the markets. I would have said 10 years ago that if they had had the resources, they would have clearly turned the clock back 25 years and gone back to the central planning system because that gives them an extreme degree of control over the population. One of the things about the current leader, Kim Jong-un, the grandson of the country's founder, Kim Il-sung, is that he appears to be much more comfortable than his father or grandfather were with obvious uh, social differentiation based on income and wealth. Uh, He's just more comfortable with bling. So whether he would necessarily want to turn the clock back in the kind of extreme way that I think his father or grandfather would have liked to have done uh, is less clear to me. He seems to be more comfortable with the market and more comfortable with the rise of a kind of nouveau riche class. Nevertheless, many of these activities that they engage in today are still technically illegal. And so people can be kind of hauled in if they get crossways uh, with important state officials. So going back in time a little bit, shortly after this period of the 1990s, when things begin to stabilize, you see exactly the phenomenon you're describing where the regime sort of cracks down once things get a little better in 2002. Can you explain more what happened there with the currency reform and the other changes that were made? That is a very interesting and I think not fully understood episode. 
the argument I would make, and this is in part speculative argument, that what happened in 2002 was that the regime attempted to make a fundamental strategic reorientation. What it appears that they were doing was accepting that the correlation of forces were not favorable in terms of their competition with the South. And they were looking at best at a prolonged period of peaceful coexistence until they could build themselves back up and be more assertive in their dealings with the South. North Korea is the most militarized country on earth in terms of the percentage of the population has under arms or what we think the amount of their budget they devote to the military. What they did in 2002 was float the idea of demobilizing a significant part of their military. At the same time, they were developing weapons of mass destruction and their delivery systems, most obviously missiles. So you could see a kind of situation in which they were going to go into kind of a defensive stance. They would maintain the weapons of mass destruction, most prominently nuclear weapons, the missile delivery systems, which would maintain deterrence. Nobody would attack them as long as they were capable of raining nuclear fire on, on South Korea and Japan. Then they could demobilize part of that conventional army, which was kind of an albatross around their necks. But we know that if you're going to de demobilize a half a million men from the army, you need something for them to do. And so that was where economic reform came in. And they were going to reform the economy, uh, allow greater marketization. And then the final part of this kind of uh, four-step plan was an appeal to Japan. The North Koreans and the Japanese have never settled post-colonial claims or war reparations, whatever the term you want to use. And that's the one large financial claim that the North Koreans have on the international system. So they were uh, engaged in an outreach with the Japanese with the idea that they would basically settle things with the Japanese. The Japanese would give them a bunch of money. That would allow them to keep goods on the shelves while they were going through a transitional process of reform that would be disruptive in order to complete this kind of reorientation. What I think they were trying to do with that plan was blown apart in the fall of 2002. First of all, the outreach to Japan was mishandled really on the Japanese side. The Japanese public uh, became extremely upset about the revelation that North Korea had in fact abducted a, a significant number of Japanese citizens so the sort of the Japanese part of the plan fell apart. And then the United States revealed in negotiations that they were aware of a second secret nuclear program that the North Koreans had not acknowledged up until that point. And so suddenly they went from a situation where they thought they could engage in some economic reform supported by aid from Japan while reorienting their military, I went to a situation where relations with both Japan and the United States deteriorated quite rapidly and they were kind of left high and dry. And that ended up having some interesting knock-on consequences in terms of the switch from getting aid from the international community in the 1990s to progressively increasing sanctions over the next sort of 15 years. But that nevertheless didn't change sort of the overall marketization. I guess it just changed sort of the direction of how it, how it went. But it, I mean, the, the military is still sort of foremost in society, but there was no rollback of the bottom-up reforms from the 1990s? Well, after that debacle in 2002, there was a period of crackdown. Uh, one of the things that's sort of curious about North Korea is that you can sort of tell what's happening by reading the North Korean criminal code and the associated regulations. So what we see in the mid-2000 is a big increase in economic crimes in the criminal code. So it basically becomes a capital crime to essentially steal assets from a state-owned enterprise. Pimping, running a prostitution ring out of a restaurant or motel or hotel becomes a capital crime. Trading precious metals in the market becomes a capital crime. And it's kind of indicative of the activities that were going on at the time and hence the need to criminalize them. So they went through a period of tightening, and since then they have gone through a period of relaxation. And I think one of the big changes between that period and the current time is with the new leadership of Kim Jong-un. He basically seems to be more comfortable with markets. 
than his father or his grandfather. So you have a situation in which the military remains the dominant institution in the society. Many of the activities that these nouveau riches are engaged in are technically illegal, but they're allowed to continue. So you now have, for example, private participation in the construction of apartment buildings, and you have a limited market for urban housing, things like that, that didn't exist, say, 10 years ago. So let's talk about how North Korea is able to pay for these imports, because in the past, they were mostly autarkic and then dependent upon favorable pricing from the Soviets. Then there was a period where they failed to adjust and they had to just constrict consumption massively and the population shrank. Since then, things have have improved somewhat for them. What are some of the ways that people in North Korea are able to pay for imports? Well, North Korea experienced a Stalinist industrialization, but many of the products that North Koreans produced uh, were either not desirable or, or of low quality. So, for example, the North Koreans used to produce televisions and radios that didn't have tuners. You just flipped on the uh, power switch and you got state propaganda. Well, obviously, there's not a great demand on the world market for television and radios without tuners. And even some of the other industrial or manufactured goods that they produced would often be rejected or couldn't really be sold, even in the markets of their fraternally allied socialists. Uh, brethren. So the, so the manufacturing sector of North Korea produced products that really were not very saleable. So as the economy marketized, there has essentially been a shift away from manufacturing and towards essentially natural resource sectors, mainly minerals, coal, but a variety of other metals, as well as some niche agricultural and marine products. So North Korea has become an increasingly resource-centric economy. And it benefited from that during the boom in world commodity prices. So it was able to ride up the China-led boom in world commodity prices. China emerged as its biggest trade partner, and it was selling a lot of coal and a lot of minerals to China. So that was one way that it was able to pay for things. The other way, of course, is that North Korea has a long history of engaging in unconventional, illicit, and or criminal behavior. It has been a very large arms exporter, a variety of types of arms. At one point, it was exporting a lot of Scud missiles, also exported a lot of kind of Soviet-designed light weaponry, AK-47, things of that sort, and as well as military services, some mercenary services, some Praetorian Guard services, things of that sort. So there were kind of military exports. Then there were things like counterfeiting, both counterfeiting products like cigarettes, as well as counterfeiting currency, drug trafficking. And so those unconventional or illicit activities at their peak probably accounted for something like 40% of North Korea's revenues. I think that figure has probably fallen in recent years as the opportunities for illicit commerce expanded and interdiction uh, made it more difficult for the North Koreans to earn money through some of these avenues. They also, for example, export labor. And when I say export, this is an organized process in which you you hire 100 or 300 North Korean workers. Most of those workers are engaged in construction, mining, forestry, occupations of that nature. So the balance payments in North Korea is unusual in that they earn uh, a fair amount of revenues from kind of unusual uh, sources. All of that has come into uh, under considerable pressure in the last couple of years as the United Nations, as well as individual countries around the world, have tightened sanctions on North Korea in response to its multiple nuclear weapons tests and long-range intercontinental ballistic missile tests. What are some of the places that are the big customers before these crackdowns, I guess, of, of North Korea's more unconventional exports, such as construction labor or mercenaries, places like that? So North Korea basically was associated with some kind of involvement in missiles with pretty much every major oil exporter. So if countries had oil and they had cash, often the North Koreans were there uh, selling arms. In terms of the labor, the biggest importer of labor has been China, 
Russia is also prominent. Most of those workers are in construction or logging in Siberia and the Russian Far East, although some of them were involved in constructing uh, football stadiums or for the FIFA uh, World Cup. Those laborers in construction have been sent to the Middle East. In terms of military services, the North Koreans have been involved in military actions in sub-Saharan Africa. They have been involved in military police training in sub-Saharan Africa. They have been involved in military participation in the Syrian civil war. And in terms of Praetorian Guard services, they have acted as bodyguards for a number of authoritarian rulers in Africa and Asia. So a bit of a broader question, and this, and this sort of backs up over sort of the past 25, 30 years or so and touches on some of these points. How has North Korea's economic relationship with China changed? Because one of the things I've gotten from reading your work and others is that before the fall of the Soviet Union, China was not a major partner. I mean, they were, they were a partner, but they were not a major partner in North Korea. They've subsequently seems to be kind of the dominant export partner, but their relationship in terms of how much they're willing to offer concessional terms, North Korea seems to have oscillated quite a bit. Can you give a sense of, of how that's evolved over time? Historically, the Soviet Union was North Korea's major patron. When the Soviet Union collapsed, China essentially stepped into the breach. China has its own geostrategic reasons for seeing North Korea continue to exist as an independent sovereign state. And it initially boosted its support for North Korea expanding trade and expanding trade on the so-called friendship prices. Having said that, if there was a single trigger to the famine in the 1990s, it was actually the cutoff of Chinese food aid. China has gone through, and this has happened more than once, not just North Korea, but other countries on China's periphery, when world food conditions tightened and domestic food prices began rising in China, the Chinese government on more than one occasion has responded with export embargoes. So the export embargo on North Korea in uh, the early 90s was not directed at North Korea per se. It was undertaken for Chinese internal reasons. Nevertheless, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and pushed North Korea into full-blown famine. Since then, North Korea has attempted to essentially diversify its support, at one point getting a substantial amount of aid from South Korea and trying to develop relations with the European Union and kind of a more diversified set of patrons. But China has been relatively constant through all this. China now accounts for 90% or more of North Korea's trade. That's a bit misleading because it is under severe sanctions from South Korea, Japan, the United States, and other countries. If one does an analysis of what North Korea's trade pattern might look like if North Korea were a, quote, normal country, if it had a market economy and it traded with other countries the way other countries around the world trade with each other, South Korea is the natural trade partner. China would still be important, but it would fall considerably. The situation now, though, is that the country is extremely reliant on China. And from a geopolitical standpoint, the critical issue in a policy of attempting to deal with the North Korean nuclear program in significant part through economic sanctions is dependent on China's willingness to implement those sanctions. If China is willing to implement the sanctions, then North Korea is in very deep trouble. But China has not shown any great enthusiasm for implementing sanctions uh, up until this point. So this gets to the question of how much of North Korea's economic isolation is caused by sanctions and how much of it is self-imposed. Obviously, sanctions limit the possibility of trade between, say, South Korea and North Korea, or the United States and North Korea. But at the same time, there are a lot of incidents where North Korea has chosen to be not just self-sufficient, but also deliberately cut off and seeming to be afraid of what uh, regular trade relationships with other countries might might do. If there were no sanctions, do we have a sense? I mean, I, I know you said that we would likely expect to see more trade with, with South Korea and probably with Japan, but how much different would the economy look like than it does now, in your view? That's a really good question. So if we go back in time, there used to be something called a multi-fiber arrangement, which was a global bilateral web of product-specific quotas 
in the apparel sector. And apparel is one of the things that North Korea presumably has a comparative advantage in. And during the, the bad old days of the MFA, what one could observe is that North Korea had chronically had unused quota. And this is just, this is just amazing. Uh, North Korea would have a quota to export a certain number of men's shirts, for example, to the European Union, and it wouldn't fill that quota. And in the context of the MFA, not, meet, not meeting their quota, so to speak, was highly unusual. And that suggests that there are real supply-side problems in the North Korean economy. I can tell you from personal experience that some of the manufactured goods produced in North Korea uh, really are of very low quality, and it's hard to imagine them selling it from the world market. So the question is not just sanctions. It is, would the North Korean government allow foreign firms into North Korea to invest? Because basically you have in North Korea a certain population, a certain capital stock and, and infrastructure that with the right set of blueprints, so to speak, would be able to produce things that people on the world market would actually want to purchase. And then what you would need is basically foreign investors to supply those blueprints, so to speak, as well as supply the worldwide distribution and marketing which North Korea lacks. So the kind of neural connections between the latent potential of the North Korean economy and the rest of the world. If that were the situation, if you had the removal of sanctions along with a set of internal changes that would address the supply-side constraints, then one would expect to see an absolutely fantastic expansion of trade. The North Korean economy is, you know, North Korea has about 25 million people. It's not a very big place. And you would expect, given its location, bordering China, South Korea, across a, a relatively small body of water from, from Japan, you would expect those linkages with those three economies, not to mention the rest of the world, to be very dense. And so when we do modeling of the North Korean economy and we impose you know, a scenario in which the sanctions are removed and you get sort of a change in management, so to speak, that allows foreign direct investment to come in and allows, you know, those neural connections to be made. North Korea's trade share goes well over 100% of GDP. You see a tremendous increase in income. There is a big expansion of the manufacturing sector, uh, light manufacturing, kind of medium tech manufacturing a fall in capital goods, a fall in agricultural production, specifically grains with farmers shifting out of grains and into more niche agricultural products like vegetables and fruits that can be sold to local urban markets, a big expansion of the mining industry as uh, foreign mining companies come in, rehabilitate the mines, develop new mines. So better economic relations with the rest of the world could mean a fantastic transformation of the North Korean economy and uh, reduction in poverty and food insecurity. And that's really the tragedy of North Korea. The political system is so authoritarian and so unaccountable that it is able year after year after year, decade after decade, to pursue these grotesquely suboptimal policies, keeping much of the population food insecure and in real poverty, when there is an opportunity for something much, much better. But the regime is not willing to go down that road, or at least has not been willing to go down that road yet uh, because of its fear of loss of political control. I guess sort of the closest parallel we have is when they tried in the 70s, and then that didn't work out well at all, right, when they, when they began borrowing and, and, and investing in technology, but then it quickly sort of fell apart. Well, it, it, after the first oil shock, there was this big shift in income towards the oil exporters, and we had this issue of recycling and the so-called petrodollars. And so bankers around the world were looking at new markets in which to invest. And one of the markets they found, and these were mainly French and Japanese bankers, was uh, North Korea. So in the mid-1970s, the North Koreans experienced a kind of boom in international borrowing and foreign investment. 
And basically, when it came time to pay the bills, Kim Il-sung simply defaulted. The only communist country to ever just flat out default on its debts. And that had an implication later in that the country is basically cut off from international capital markets. So when it started to enter the famine, it didn't really have the opportunity to borrow money and then purchase food on commercial terms. It either had to expand exports or get straight aid. But the North Korean uh, business environment is very, very challenging for foreign investors. And even the Chinese, uh, we know this from uh, some survey work that I've been involved in, even the Chinese are sufficiently fearful of expropriation that they prefer trading with the North Koreans to investing in North Korea. And even when they invest, it appears that they may try to keep their operations relatively small and kind of below the radar because they fear predation. Again, it is true that North Korea has bad diplomatic relations with much of the world and is subject to all kinds of sanctions, but it's also the case, even in the absence of sanctions, that the internal institutions and practices of North Korea are, are, are so weak and so discouraging that it inhibits business even from, say, Chinese investors, who one would think are uh, pretty used to dealing with challenging environments. So one thing you've written a lot about very recently is this concept of economic statecraft as it applies to North Korea. In other words, do you try to make nice and engage and trade and invest in North Korea, or do you do sanctions and how both of these strategies don't seem to work very well for the reasons you've been describing? What are some of the things that you think potentially might work better? I think that if there is to be a resolution of the North Korean nuclear problem and North Korea's more general difficulties in getting along with its neighbors, both sanctions and engagement or inducements will play a role. Sanctions will be needed to get North Korea to the negotiating table, and, and that's why I actually think the next year or two is a very dangerous period. We know from the work of my Peterson Institute colleagues, Gary Huffbauer and Jeff Schott, that uh, sanctions tend to work when uh, the target country is small and weak, when the issue or behavior or policy that is being sanctioned is not a core political commitment of the regime, and when the sanctioning coalition is, is universal or near universal. And we can see in the North Korean case, those conditions don't hold. The nuclear program is a core political commitment of the regime, and there is unevenness in enthusiasm for implementing sanctions. The argument that Steph Haggard and I uh, emphasized in our book, Hard Target, that came out last year, is that the nature of the domestic political institutions matter as well. And in particular, authoritarian regimes are very good at resisting sanctions, both because they are able to repress uh, the popular discontent that might be associated with worsening economic conditions associated with sanctions, but they're also capable of steering the rents the sanctions create to politically favored constituencies. So if products start going under sanction and uh, now the market is distorted, rents are created, those can be shifted, say, towards the military, uh, who then become beneficiaries of this distorted regime. So sanctions alone are unlikely to solve the North Korean nuclear program, but they're almost surely necessary to get North Korea to the negotiating table. Once that you get them to the table, inducements also, you know, uh, are going to play a role. Now, some people make the analytical mistake of saying, well, sanctions aren't working, so we should try engagement. Engagement has almost the exact analogous problems in implementation as sanctions do. There are problems of coordinating across countries. There's, there's problems of uh, moral hazard with respect to the country with which you're engaging and, and so on. At the end of the day, though, if we're going to have a deal with North Korea to deal with the nuclear problem and, and generally try to reach a state of less uh, confrontational relations, engagement or inducements are going to be part of the package as well. So I think you need both of those economic policy tools to solve the problem, but neither one of them alone is going to be sufficient. Now, what might that kind of final end state look like? I think what one could hope for is essentially a freeze a freeze on development, a further development, testing, production, deployment of nuclear weapons or missiles, diplomatic relations with the United States, 
a formal end to the Korean War. The Korean War is still, I mean, it's only an armistice. There's never been a peace treaty. It's a formal end to the new, uh, Korean War, along with security guarantees provided by the United States, China, and others that in this kind of new era, North Korea will not be subject to attack. Now, at the end of the day, whether North Korea would accept such a package or not is an open question. There may not be any price that we can basically pay to resolve this issue. But I think it is unlikely that they will negotiate until they can demonstrate a capacity to hitting the continental United States with nuclear weapons. That's probably still a year or two off. It requires more testing, which we will regard as provocative. So I think the current moment in which there are no live negotiations with the North Koreans and the North Koreans are likely to continue to engage in behavior that the United States or the world community more broadly regards as provocative is a very dangerous moment. We may eventually get through that to a point in which we can negotiate, and that's where you know the tightened sanctions combined with some offers of inducement may be part of a package that brings this uh, situation to a close. Within the universe of sanctions, there are a lot of differences in terms of what's been done and what, what can be done further. There's targeted financial sanctions on specific banks that are thought to be fronts from North Korea and used for purchasing advanced equipment for the nuclear program. There are sanctions on things like no more oil exports to North Korea, no more purchasing coal exports from North Korea. What's your sense of how all these things fit together and which of them are the most effective? That's a great question. There are basically two forms of sanctions, sanctions on goods trade and financial sanctions, and they have really different dynamics, both in economic terms and in terms of kind of policy implementation. And then really the devil gets down to the details of implementations. Normally, when countries engage in sanctions on merchandise trade, those sanctions are unpopular in the sanctioning countries because you are telling your exporters they can't make money anymore. So those exporters immediately start lobbying the government to weaken the sanctions. They don't want the sanctions to go in because you're depriving them of revenue and profits. And you know they will look to circumvent sanctions, as will the country that's being targeted. So there's a dynamic in which you're basically uh, taking money away from people, and they don't like it, and they resist. To make matters worse, in a practical way, the way it works in terms of North Korea and multilateral sanctions, those sanctions are negotiated at the United Nations, typically by the foreign ministries of various countries around the world. Then, once the participants agree on a sanctions resolution, sanctions resolution is uh, passed by the Security Council, all the governments in the world are supposed to turn around to their customs administration, which is typically a different bureaucratic agency, and uh, have them go enforce the sanctions. So it's kind of a bureaucratic mandate that's emanating from the foreign ministry that's oftentimes being put on the finance ministry or the customs administration or some other part of government. And that creates kind of bureaucratic implementation issues. The financial sanctions work differently. Basically, what is going on is the United States is leveraging the size and wealth of its financial markets to create incentives for other countries to go along and private sector entities to go along with the sanctions. The way it works is this. The U.S. Treasury can designate a foreign bank or, or company as being involved in sanctions evasion in one sort of another or it will designate entities in North Korea as being involved in sanctions evasion or illegal activities or whatever. If you are a bank in, in say, China or some other country, uh, you look at this situation, uh, you're doing, say, a billion dollars a year of business in the United States, and you're doing $10 million of business in North Korea, uh, whatever you think of the merits of the case, you're going to drop North Korea because that's just the commercially prudent thing to do. In addition, those types of sanctions and measures are typically negotiated between finance ministries and central banks and bank regulators. And you have a similar bureaucratic dynamic if you're, say, the People's Bank of China. You have a whole range of issues in which you are interacting with American authorities, uh, financial system regulation, exchange rate management, and so on. You don't want to get crossways with the Americans over 
some relatively minor financial transactions some Chinese bank is doing with North Korea. So you get both less resistance at the bureaucratic level in uh, the counterpart governments, as well as the private sector, just looking at, you know, the, the equities and, and deciding essentially to do the right thing from the United States standpoint. So it's a very different dynamic and one that has had some positive, I think, or, or, or shown some effectiveness in the case of North Korea. At the end of the day, though, these all, these all depend on, on implementation. So, for example, the last round of UN sanctions puts very severe constraints on oil exports to North Korea, but it didn't set up any body to go monitor those, those oil exports. Most of the ex oil going into North Korea, or much of the oil going into North Korea, are going via a pipeline from China, but the, the United Nations did not send, you know, peacekeeping troops or, or, or the kind of uh, military intelligence units that it created when Iraq was under similar sanctions to go inspect the Chinese oil pipeline and make sure the oil wasn't flowing through it. And so at the end of the day, if you don't have uh, implementation enforcement, what may appear to be very severe or tight sanctions on paper may not actually amount to much in practice. So another thing that's come up recently that people consider to be a potential threat to the effectiveness of the existing sanctions regime is the rise of, of Bitcoin and various crypto technologies. And, and there's been a lot of press recently about the connection between that and North Korea. What, what is your sense? You know, I, as I mentioned, North Korea has historically engaged in a variety of illicit and illegal activities, counterfeiting and so on. As law enforcement and interdiction has tightened on those activities, it appears that there has been a shift towards cybercrime. So uh, North Korea, it appears, has been involved in a number of cybercrime activities, attacking banks in South Korea and other countries, as well as trying to get involved in uh, cyber currencies, precisely because the greater degree of anonymity of exchange and transactions uh, using these currency vehicles may allow them to uh, their sanctions evasion networks to work more effectively than if they are trying to do transactions in U.S. dollars that get them uh, under the microscope of uh, U.S. authorities or uh, moving money through the SWIFT system that likewise there may be some pressure on SWIFT to crack down on the North Koreans. So both in terms of cyber crime as well as in terms of cryptocurrencies, this appears to be an area of growing North Korean involvement. So I think my last question is going to be how you are able to get the information that you do. I know you've mentioned, and it comes up a lot in your books, that you survey refugees um, to get a sense of what's going on in North Korea. Can you expand more on that and how, how you're able to get the information that you have? Well, people often ask me, uh, you know, where do I get my data on North Korea? And my flippant answer is I make it up. There is very little reliable, conventional economic data on North Korea. North Korea even regards trade statistics as a state secret. So if you want to try to understand the North Korean trade pattern, you have to use what are called mirror statistics. So instead of being able to look at a North Korean data source and see what they're exporting and importing, you have to construct those exports and imports by looking at the imports and exports of all the other economies in the world. And it is almost the case every single year that some statistical authority somewhere in the world gets North and South Korea confused. And the volume of trade of North Korea and South Korea is so wildly different that one classification mistake of that sort can completely both distort the magnitude as well as the content of North Korean trade. So one year, for example, somebody in the relevant statistical agency in Mexico got North and South Korea confused, and suddenly North Korea was exporting large amounts of automobiles, cell phones, and so on to Mexico. So you, you have to sort of clean the data to make sure you're getting rid of those obvious misreporting errors. And that's even something as simple as trade statistics. Some of the most informative work that I've done has actually been based on surveys. In addition to the refugee surveys that you've mentioned, Steph Haggard and I also did surveys of Chinese enterprises operating in North Korea, as well as South Korean enterprises operating in North Korea. 
And and some people tend to uh, kind of look askance at refugee surveys because they're often asking the refugees political questions. But if you if you ask the refugees sort of simpler, less loaded questions like how did you make money and how did you spend it, I think you can get a pretty good idea of some of the actual workings of the North Korean economy in reality versus how it may be supposed to be working on paper. I mean, you can trace out, for example, the collapse of the PDS during the famine period by region, by seeing when people stopped getting access to food through that method and started having to use other methods to obtain food. And one of the interesting things is North Korean economy, perhaps not surprisingly, appears to be highly corrupt. Predation on economic actors by state officials appears to be widespread and and large scale. And what's interesting is one gets the same sets of responses, the same patterns of responses, both from the refugees as well as, say, the Chinese enterprises operating in North Korea, that suggests that this really is a basic characteristic of the economy and how it works. So at the end of the day, analysis of the North Korean economy requires a certain amount of ingenuity and a certain amount of creativity and a certain amount of judgment. It's about as much art as it is science. Marcus Nolan, thank you very much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. And that's the end of today's show. Do you have a question for us that you want us to try to answer on a future episode? You can send us an email. We're at alphachat at ft.com. You can also record a voice memo with your question or comment. We might even play it on the show. Please rank and review Alpha Chat on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find out about us. And thanks again to Matt and to Marcus and to you, our listeners. We'll see you here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.